Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our discussion of sinkholes. Now, in the last episode, we talked about uh, some some fabulous examples of sinkholes that suddenly open up and reveal interesting things below. We talked about how sinkholes form, how the, the geology and hydrology of sinkholes, and we talked about some interesting specific examples in the world. Uh, but today, we wanted to get into some things about like the religious significance of sinkholes and sinkholes as a scientific tool that can help show us things about the past, uh, and also maybe some sinkholes in space. But I I thought sinkholes in religion would be a good place to start, because one of the interesting ways of conceptualizing uh, deities is that deities are often manifestations of natural forces and natural resources. And of course, one of the most important natural resources is water. So there are all kinds of water deities around the world. Coastal civilizations and cultures will have deities associated with the ocean that are very important in their culture. But uh, if you're if you're more inland, there will often be deities associated with where you get your fresh water, either a, a very important river or there are even uh, there are lots of holy wells that are found throughout the history uh, of, of Europe both pagan and Christian. There are a lot of like holy wells and water sources. And the same is true of many sinkholes in ancient Mesoamerica. That's right. Um, in, in particular, the, the sacred uh, cenotes of the Maya, uh, which, is, uh, which is what we like to talk about here. Uh, I was reading a piece, uh, a really nice piece on um, mexicolore.co.uk by Maya archaeologist Andrew Kinkella. Um, just titled Sacred Sinkholes. And he discusses some of what we've already mentioned in regard to, you know, the large number of these uh, sinkholes or cenotes in in Mesoamerica. Uh, The entire area is situated on a limestone bedrock, and we end up with with these hollows, and then they collapse, and then, of course, they they often fill with water. Uh, But so, yeah, you're left with something that's not just a deep pit, which alone can be pretty um, interesting, uh, but pits with water, often from deep underground. So you're often talking clean water, clear water, an ideal resource. Uh, some of these contain as much as like 50 meters of water, uh, he points out. Yeah, there are a lot of fascinating things about these sinkholes, one of which, uh, just before I forget, I wanted to call attention to. They explore some of these uh, cenotes in the Yucatan Peninsula in the documentary that we recently interviewed Werner Herzog and Clive Oppenheimer about. There, there's yes. a segment where they uh, – so that documentary is called Fireball, and it's about impacts from space and the scars they leave on Earth and, and what we can learn from them. And one of the things they explore is if, if you look at a map of the cenotes – of the Yucatan Peninsula, there's one part of the Yucatan where there is this almost perfect partial ring of cenotes, and it's like, what's going on there? And that apparently corresponds to the outer rim of the crater that was left by the impact from the KPG extinction, the the large space impact that probably contributed significantly to the extinction of the non-avian dinosaurs. And so in Fireball, there's a segment where uh, where Clive Oppenheimer goes down into one of these uh, beautiful ancient cenotes with a local researcher, and, and they talk about not just what it can tell us geologically, we might get a little bit more into that later, but uh, but also what it means religiously. Yeah. 
So especially for areas far from rivers, these cenotes became very important for just purely practical reasons. Like this is where you could get water. This mm-hmm. enabled you to live and have, uh, you know, have, have communities that existed further away from those rivers. But then they ended up taking on religious power as well. And Kinkella writes that the ancient Maya regarded cenotes as one of the three symbolic entryways uh, to Shibalba, the Mayan underworld. So eventually this kind of, he describes it as a cenote cult emerges, devoted to venturing out, like taking these pilgrimages to different cenotes, collecting water from them, from from the different ones, and making offerings up to the watery depths. And their role, these uh, these priests, these pilgrims, their role would have been seen as vitally important, especially during p- times of drought. You know, when when the um, the, the resources of the cenotes becomes uh, you know in doubt or seems threatened, like they seem to have a role in in trying to maintain the balance, to try and maintain uh, the bountiful gifts of these places. Uh, I was also looking at an article on uh, National Geographic titled Secrets of the Maya and Otherworld, and this was by Alma uh, Guillermo Prieto. And, uh, and this is about the, uh, the sinkholes uh, that we've been discussing here and about how they were also associated with a key deity, which was uh, uh, Chak, I believe, so it's spelled in this article as C-H-A-A-K. I've also seen it with a, with a C-H-A-A-C, I think. Yeah. So here's what they wrote in this article, quote, or this is just a, a really, I think, telling uh, passage from it. Quote, for men like Unkin, the old gods are still very much alive, and Chak, ruler of cenotes and caves, is among the most important gods of all. For the benefit of living things, he pours from the skies the water he keeps in earthenware jars and caves. Chak is one in many. Each thunderclap is a separate chalk in action, breaking a jar open and letting the rain fall. Each god inhabits a separate layer of reality, along with dozens of alternately complacent and ferocious gods that live in the 13 other worlds above and the nine other worlds below. Together, they filled the Maya people's lives with dreams, visions, and nightmares, a complicated calendar of agricultural times and fertility rituals, and a firm sense of the way things must be done. Chak had moved, Unkin said, and that meant the planting season would soon arrive. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So in this, we see that a cave or cenote could be seen as, as a dwelling place of chalk, uh, but it could also you know, be seen as this yawning maw of the earth or even this gateway to deeper realms of reality. Yeah, and, and this combines uh, the, the multiple versions. So you, you can, of course, see these cenotes as a gateway to the underworld and a source of water. Uh, but I was also reading in a different National Geographic article um, about like the, the, the specifics of certain cenotes. Like it's not just all cenotes are religiously equivalent. There would be, for example, some cenotes in specific locations that have different religious significance for the, the people who live nearby. Uh, the one I was thinking of was uh, the a cenote that uh, as the ancient Mayan city had a wall, there was like – you know, many cenotes within the wall uh, that could be used as a water source, but there's one cenote outside the city wall that it seems was regarded primarily as a place for the burial of the dead. And there have been many human remains found down inside that one. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah there, there are a whole slew of them with different significances. Uh, the most famous of the cenotes uh, is probably the sacred cenote at the, the Maya site of Chichen Itza. 
where there was this it's it's been a place of of a fair amount of study there was a small building by it that was apparently used for blood sacrifices um again tying into traditions related to the um, you know the sacredness of the spot and the continuation of water uh, a variety of sacred objects were also apparently cast into the cenote including precious jade artifacts gold and copper discs uh foods and other organic items that um that we we actually can find you know evidence of, but uh, yeah. So you think of this as like an opening up into the the world below, where you might throw offerings, where you might make sacrifices of of material or sacrifices of blood. It's hard for me not to sort of connect this to some of the stuff we were talking about in the previous episode, where uh, there is a pretty clear link between pumping too much groundwater up. You know, like uh, there are certain places where there's a need for for massive irrigation of fields maybe sometime to like protect a certain crop from frost or something so you will pump just tons and tons of water to to, to put over the fields uh, so 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 much that you really lower the level of the groundwater and suddenly cause lots of sinkholes to to open up where the suddenly the you know the water pressure is not what it was below the overburden can't hold up its own weight and then collapses and this has happened in the US in places like Florida I mean, it could be it's very easy to see how something like that could be interpreted as as the wrath of the gods. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're, you're messing with the domain of the the earth gods. Now, one of the interesting things about these Mesoamerican traditions concerning cenotes is that it's also thought that um, that native peoples um, um, elsewhere in the Americas probably carried some of these uh, uh, these ideas with them, and so when you encounter uh, some North American cenotes, uh, there's there's evidence uh, uh, that uh, these area that native peoples may have used them as burial places as well, given them um, you know uh, places of importance in their worldviews. And one such place is Devil's Sinkhole, northwest of San uh, San Antonio. Um, it's now a state park, but it's um, 140 feet deep or 43 meters deep, and um, uh, yeah, apparently there's evidence that ancient peoples came here and probably held it in some esteem. But one of the really crazy natural world things about Devil's Sinkhole is that it is home to, or at least part of the year, it is home to three million Mexican free-tailed bats. Wow, that's a lot of bats. <laughs> yeah, so they, they migrate to Mexico for the cooler months, but they, they roost up in the sinkhole uh, other parts of the year, and We've we've talked about how amazing bats are in the show before, and especially especially insectivore uh, bats, you know, that eat insects. Well, it's been estimated that the bats that live in Devil's Sinkhole, again, something like three million uh, Mexican free-tailed bats, that they consume an estimated thirty tons of beetles and moths each night. Each night, thirty tons, thirty tons of beetles and moths. That's crazy. That's one of those facts that makes you wonder how many tons of beetles there just are already. Like, is that is that yeah. half the beetles in the area? Is that one percent of the beetles in the area? Yeah, I mean, it's just a tremendous biomass out there, and yeah. these bats are here for it. Um, yeah, and most of it is insect or arthropod in some way, or you know, most of the the animal is is arthropod in some way. And wow, that's just amazing. You can measuring insects or beetles in u- units of like garbage truck fulls. Yeah. 
So I, I, I love this because, yeah, this is a great example of just sort of how, like we said in the last episode, when a sinkhole occurs, it does not, you know, create this natural void. Like things will move into the sinkhole. Things will take advantage of this new um, um, aspect of the geography. And in this case, the bats uh, make it their home. So uh, if you if you live in the San Antonio area, or you have visited there and you've been to, to Devil's Sinkhole, I'd love to hear uh hear about your experience checking it out. I know if you go uh, during the right time of the year, you can actually observe the bats like uh, uh, moving in and out of the, of, of the, the cavern area. So uh, yeah, it sounds beautiful. I've read that there are also, I mean, one of the things is that uh, belief in the sacredness of, of sinkholes and, and their association with the world of the gods is not just an ancient belief. Uh, it's not necessarily extinct. I mean, there are people today for whom sinkholes hold sacred importance. And if, if you, uh, if you are one of those people or know some, I'd like to hear about that too. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to hear, you know, especially the the details about uh, any modern rites associated with it, and mm-hmm. uh, and just sort of the the belief system built up around it. You know, the stories. Now, one of the things we mentioned in the previous episode is that the sinkhole is a natural feature that can inadvertently serve as a type of scientific instrument, uh, much in the same way that like ancient ice, you know, it's like nobody intended it to be this way, but we can learn things about the ancient climate from taking ice cores so that, you know, those layers of ice really give us a lot to read into the history of the earth. And apparently sinkholes can do the same thing, right? That's right. I mean, you know, we think about how they gobble up parts of the surface world. And yeah, they do sometimes do scientists a huge favor by collecting and to some degree preserving evidence of past life forms, even past like storm activity and, 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 and climates of ancient times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when we venture into the sinkhole uh, with the right tools or with the right uh, methods, uh, we're able to uncover those secrets that have been preserved there. And there have just been there have been numerous studies that have looked at sinkholes and uh, and gathered specific information from from these sinkholes and we're not going to be able to to give a full overview of them here in this episode but I wanted to touch on some that I thought provided a, a reasonable overview and, a, and an idea of what sort of stuff we can learn from sinkholes so uh, there's the for instance in 2014 a team from the University of Illinois at uh, Urbana Champaign studied genetic information extracted from the tooth of an adolescent girl who fell into a sinkhole in the Yucatan some 12,000 to 13,000 years ago. And uh, this was, her remains were found alongside the remains of, of ancient beasts. Uh, because, you know, what, what occurs is some of these really treacherous sinkholes is like things will fall in. Mm-hmm. And then they cannot get out. And, of course, they die down there. They, the, they decay down there. And the remains are down there for us to later uh, discover and study. Oh, I hadn't thought about this, but I wonder if sinkholes are one of these things, uh, one of these terrain features that can serve as a natural predator trap. Um, a predator mm-hmm. trap is, I guess, a concept in the interaction between the landscape and, and the animals that live nearby. But, uh, you know, a classic example is like the La Brea tar pits, you know, so a, an animal becomes stranded and dies in it. And then the smell attracts predators or scavengers who then themselves become trapped. Uh, another example I was reading about not too long ago was there is a geologically active valley in the Kamchatka Peninsula where uh, often like birds are killed by volcanic fumes and then their decaying bodies attract predators into the area who then also are killed by the fumes and it leads to this feedback cycle. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I, I think in, in some cases they, they definitely are serving as predator traps. Um, 
So in, in this particular study, one of the reasons this tooth was so important is that the researchers were studying the influx of humans into the Americas and wanted to see if a specimen such as this with a skull shape that, was, that uh, is unusual among other Native American lineages, they wanted to see if it fell in line genetically with those lineages or represented something else, perhaps lining up with theories about uh, migration from Southeast Asia or even Australia that didn't come in through the, the Bering Strait. Mm-hmm. Um, and they found that their remains did line up with uh, with uh, Bering Strait or Beringian migration. Okay. Uh, so that's just one cool example. Okay, let's hear another. All right, yeah. Here's one from 2019. Researchers uh, from the Florida Museum of Natural History looked at the preserved bones of a Crichton's carcara, an, an extinct carrion-eating falcon from the Caribbean, it was killed off roughly a thousand years ago when humans first entered the region, and they were looking at these remains in a flooded sinkhole um, on a Great Abaco Island in the Bahamas. Uh, and the hole is a sawmill sink, a, a hundred foot deep, dark, oxygen free environment that preserved the two thousand five hundred year old bones of this creature. Uh, enough that they could they could conduct genetic studies of it. In fact, the bone yielded ninety eight point seven percent of the bird's uh, mitochondrial genome, which is pretty impressive. Again, it's like a it it, it it's like a a, a deep cooler. You know, a, 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 it preserves uh, uh, these remains uh, that uh, if they were dropped, you know, uh, in other places on the world, would have just been long lost. No ice required. <laughs> Um, here's another one of note. In 2018, another study from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign studied the remains of a giant sloth that fell into a sinkhole in uh, what is now uh, Carablanca in central Belize 27,000 years ago. And in this, the, the tooth, humerus, and femur were partially fossilized, but there was still enough unaltered tissue for stable carbon and oxygen isotope analysis to study what the sloth ate. And this, in turn, revealed details about local climate and local environment uh, there in that region at that time, which is pretty pretty astounding. Did did it say exactly what the sloth did eat? <laughs> um, I didn't get into the 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 the, uh, the, the nuts and, and berries of of that, but uh, <laughs> um, basically, suffice to say, I'd love to come back and, and discuss um, uh, giant ground sloths more in the future, though. But mm-hmm. uh, but basically, it provided them the, the information they needed to you know to, to actually gaze back in the past and consider you know what it was consuming, and that means what was around it, what was uh, you know how it was able to make its home in, in in the world at that time. So it's pretty amazing. We could probably do a whole episode or series of episodes just on really interesting studies finding out what ancient peoples and creatures ate using analyses and chemical analyses of these kinds. Yeah, I mean, it it reveals so much. It reveals so much. Absolutely. One I was just reading not too long ago that was kind of funny to me was – was a chemical analysis of a gigantic coprolite found, or I think it was around the city of York in England, Mm -hmm. uh, that revealed it was left by a human, uh, I think like a thousand years ago or so, you know, roughly, and revealed a a diet heavy in meat and bread, but uh, also just just riddled with intestinal worms. Uh, So so then you get the double. You have the fossilized uh, poop, but then also the fossilized um, uh, creatures that were writhing inside it. Awesome, awesome. Or I guess if it's about a thousand years ago, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that counts as fossilized. I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. So it was, you know, poop from hundreds of years ago. So you know, roughly mm-hmm. around a thousand years ago. But is that technically a fossil, or is that just very well preserved poop? We'll have to come back and discuss in the future. Okay. 
Um, here's a, a 2020 study from uh, Gotha University in Frankfurt. They dove into one of the most impressive sinkholes in the world, the Blue Hole. I believe we mentioned this um, in the last episode, at least in passing. Uh, this is a flooded uh, karst sinkhole on Lighthouse Reef uh, in Belize. And they were able to, to, to drill up and analyze a sedimentary, quote, storm archive covering 2,000 years of history built layer by layer by layer in the dark depths of this hole. And it revealed a lot about uh, the frequency of tropical storms in that area over time. They found, quote, hurricanes in the Caribbean became more frequent and their force varied noticeably around the same time that classical Mayan culture in Central America suffered its final demise. So, again, just a chance to, to gaze back in time and, and see what, uh, what was going on, um, you know, with the climate and with weather patterns uh, by looking into the sinkhole. So is the suggestion there – I assume it's not totally known, but the suggestion there may be that the, uh, the organizational decline of the Mayan civilization was in some ways possibly related to changes in weather patterns – that's my understanding that it would have it have would have impacted uh, that that civilization uh, and and would have com- potentially contributed. Yeah, mm. uh, I also ran across a 2017 study from the University of Hawaii at Manoa that looked into uh, um, uh, Makawai Cave in Kauai, uh, the largest limestone cave in Hawaii and only accessible via a sinkhole. Mm. So it's a it's a rich fossil site providing insight into Hawaiian life, the sinkhole. Paleo Lake contains 10,000 years of sedimentary information, revealing a rich diversity of natural information as well as Polynesian artifacts. So in this study, they were able to find supporting evidence in the coral fragments there to discover the source of the mega earthquake uh, in the uh, Aleutian Islands that spawned the devastating 1586 tsunami that hit uh, Sanriku, Japan. So, uh, you know, again, it's, it, it goes beyond merely being able to go in and find the remains of creatures, you know, which is, I think, the first place your mind goes when you think about uh, sinkholes. But able to, to be able to go in there and find some, some shattered uh, bits of coral and then Compare that to uh, to other bits of information and sort of piece together uh, like seismic activities that occurred centuries ago. Mm-hmm. And I have I have one more here. This one's really fun too. Uh, back in 1970, a 25,000 year old sinkhole in Wyoming, a natural trap cave in Bighorn Canyon, was found. Uh, it measured 15 feet across, about 85 feet deep. And when they went into it, they discovered fossils of mammoths, uh, short-faced bears, camels, and um, collared lemmings. But they ended up boarding it up after that for 30 years to prevent accidental falls. uh, Because the Natural Park Service I was reading describes that uh, this particular sinkhole is, quote, virtually impossible to see until it is directly underfoot. And if you look at pictures of it, yeah, it looks – because if you fell – like it, it, it widens out underneath, so uh-huh. you wouldn't like skid along the side of this, or even like you would just you would just plummet down to the bottom. Yeah, it's not a cone. It's not even a cylinder. It's like a jug with a with a yeah. you know bottle opening. Yeah, so it's it's very impressive. You, you should look it up. They they have some wonderful pictures of it. The National Park Service does. But uh, so, yeah, they ended up boarding it up, boarding it up for 30 years. But when scientists finally got a chance to dig in again, they discovered numerous large prehistoric mammal bones and even complete skeletons of smaller mammals. And they said that it ultimately functioned like a refrigerator, even preserving collagen in some of the bones. It wound up containing a whopping 30,000 specimens, they say. 
And on top of this, uh, scientists are still studying what the cave can reveal about ancient human migration, ancient climate. So again, just another cache of information about about the past that we find in one of these sinkholes. No, I'm sorry if I missed this. Do, do they know if this is huge cache of different animal specimens? Is that a result of some kind of natural deposition process or is that the result of humans like humans putting animal remains into the sinkhole? Um, my understanding is that this would have been animals accidentally falling in over, over mm, the, okay. the ages. Um, uh, but I could be wrong on that. Um, there's a, I guess it's possible that, that, that some of these bodies would have been thrown in, but uh, my, my impression was that we were dealing with, with things that had, um, had made the, the very mistake that the natural, National Park Service was, uh, was warning about, you know, mm-hmm. about it being virtually impossible to see it until it's directly underfoot. Like you've got to do a real dexterity saving throw to avoid falling (laughs) to the bottom of this baby. Yeah. At disadvantage. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Well, I've got another one for you. Obviously, it would be bad to suddenly plunge down into a sinkhole uh, unwittingly on Earth. But what if you were to do it in space? Oh, wow. Well, that would be even worse. Well, actually, you might think so, but I just I just now thought of a condition that would make it maybe not nearly as bad. I don't know. We'll, we'll get into that. I mean, I would hate to fall into a sinkhole like the one we just described in general. But mm-hmm. what if then you? I mean, because you get to the bottom, what you're injured. Maybe you maybe you're going to starve to death, or you know, die of your wounds, or die of exposure down there. Maybe there's a recently. Uh, uh, fallen animal down there you can you can eat or maybe there's something down there that is going to eat you there's so many horrible ways it could go but space is a lonely place to die so i don't know how true that is uh, so i want to talk about a space object an object called comet 67p churyumov gerasimenko now this comet is called 67p because it is the 67th periodic comet discovered in our solar system. It was found in 1969 at an observatory in Russia by an astronomer named Klim Ivanovich Churyumov from a photographic plate that was taken by Svetlana Ivanova Gerasimenko. And 67P, like I said, is a periodic comet, meaning that it's a comet with a relatively short orbit that we've documented repeatedly returning to the inner solar system. Some comets, you know, they're just way, way out there and they're never going to get close to the sun. So we don't really have any chance to get a good look at them. This is one of the ones that comes in at one angle of its uh, of its orbit pretty close to the sun. And astronomers have, of course, cited it a bunch of times since it was first discovered, since it comes around every six and a half years or so. If you've seen pictures of a comet up close, there's a good chance it was this one. Uh, it's it's kind of L-shaped or sort of like a bent barbell with a very short handle. It has these two lobes of crust or, or rocky, icy material in its nucleus. It also kind of looks like a bent double mushroom. It probably originally came from the Kuiper Belt, which is a large, loose collection of icy objects that extends far out past the orbit of Neptune. So if you go out past all of the the planets, you know, you go past the gas giants, past Neptune, into the realm of Pluto, and then from there on out, there's just sort of this big shell around the solar system of, of space and these icy objects that if they're perturbed in just the right way, if they get flung off of their, their deep orbital path and thrown down down into the inner solar system, they can become these familiar periodic comets. And that appears to be what happened to 67P. It was probably flung on this path that occasionally brings it close to the sun. 
when long ago it was subject to a collision or a gravitational disturbance by some other object. At its biggest dimensions, it's a little over four kilometers or about 2.5 miles long and wide. So it would be big enough to walk on, but not nearly as big as a planet or even a moon. Now, we know a lot about 67P and have great pictures of it because it was the target of the ESA, the European Space Agency, Rosetta mission, which actually landed a probe on the surface of this comet and took a bunch of amazing photos, among other things. Uh, and there's a lot that's really interesting about this comet. There, there's likely one amazing short video or GIF that you've seen from its surface. And this was made out of a series of still images taken by the lander that's, that were sequenced together into an animation where it looks kind of like there's a snowstorm or a blizzard raining down onto the surface. Rob, have you seen this animation before? Uh, yes, I believe so. It's really amazing. Now, it does need some qualification that this is not actually a snowstorm like we would experience here on Earth. Uh, and the animation that we see is a sped up animation. It takes something, I think, like 25 minutes of original uh, you know, time lapse between the different photos and compresses it into a few seconds of, of a panning camera shot. Uh, so it's not actually a snowstorm, but probably more like the movements of dust particles and the star field as the comet travels. But it's still just one of the most strange and beautiful images I I've seen made out of photos taken by a space probe. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely otherworldly. Now, there are a lot of things that were interesting about the Rosetta mission, including the ways that the Rosetta mission kind of went wrong. Do you, do you remember this when it was trying to put the Philae lander down on the surface of the comet and how it kind of bounced in a way it wasn't supposed to? I, I, rem yeah, I remember this being a, a point in the news around the time it happened, yeah. Yeah, so the uh, so the Rosetta mission had the, it had a lander that separated from the orbiter craft, and then the lander was supposed to touch down on the surface of the comet, and I believe it was supposed to fire these harpoons that would lock it into the surface so it didn't float away again. Because uh, again, thinking about the the gravity of a comet. Uh, its mass is so small compared to the kind of gravity we're used to on planets or moons that you can quite easily drift away from it if you've really got any momentum at all. I believe I read that the escape velocity from this comet was one meter per second. So if you're you know moving away from its center of mass at one p meter per second or more, you're not going to fall back down. You're just going to keep drifting away. But anyway, uh, uh, what I think happened with the lander was that it was supposed to fire these harpoons to lock it into the surface, but that didn't work correctly. So instead, it kind of bounced after it touched the surface and then bounced a couple of times and eventually came to rest under a cliff. Because remember, this is not like a spherical comet, but it's kind of bent L-shaped with these round edges. It came to rest under some kind of cliff or overhang, the shadow of which mostly blocked the solar panels that were supposed to power the lander. So then that led to you know uh led to it not having enough power to do all the things it wanted to do but despite that there was still a, a huge amount of um uh, really great science that came out of the rosetta mission and these wonderful photographs and one of the interesting findings about this comet 67p that i wanted to mention uh, this was from a nasa press release from september of 2020 called comet discovered to have its own northern lights 
this was actually revealed with the help of NASA instruments that were part of the ESA Rosetta mission. What they found was that the comet has this invisible glow. It has an aurora of far ultraviolet radiation. Uh, these findings were published in Nature Astronomy of last year. And this electromagnetic glow was an aurora much like we see in the polar regions of Earth. So on Earth, the northern and southern lights are created when charged particles from the sun collide with gas particles in our upper atmosphere. And this results in reactions that create patterns of green, red, and white across, uh, across the sky. Other planets in the solar system also have auroral phenomena. Uh, Jupiter does. I think even Mars does. Uh, many planets. But this is the first time we've ever observed it surrounding a comet. And a quote from the press release here, quote, Electrons streaming out in the solar wind, the stream of charged particles flowing out from the sun, interact with the gas in the comet's coma, breaking apart water and other molecules. The resulting atoms give off a distinctive far ultraviolet light. Invisible to the naked eye, far ultraviolet light has the shortest wavelengths of radiation in the ultraviolet spectrum. Which uh, makes me wonder if this comet could give you a sunburn. <laughs> But anyway, I, I want to get around to the main study I wanted to talk about, uh, tying into our, our overall theme today. So this is a study published in 2015 in Nature by uh, Jean-Baptiste Vincent et al., called Large Heterogeneities in Comet 67P as Revealed by Active Pits from Sinkhole Collapse. So the authors here talk about how a lot of times when we get a look at the surface of a cometary nucleus, that's the hard, icy core of the comet. Remember, a comet has... So it's got a hard core that's made of like ice and dust, the part you could walk on. And then it's surrounded often by you know, sort of cloud or tail, the coma is made of uh, water vapor, dust and gas. And when they get a look at this hard nucleus of a comet, we often observe pits. Now, there's one way that that might not be surprising, because if you think about other objects in the solar system, like the moon or asteroids, the dwarf planet like Ceres, they have a lot of pits also, and these are quite clearly impact craters. As these objects are bombarded by space junk over millions of years, these pits accumulate, and if the planets or moons don't have active geology like volcanoes and plate tectonics to repeatedly pave and smooth over the surface, the pits from ancient impacts just sit there, and they stay there, and we can see them easily. But there is a problem with explaining the pits on comets as impact craters, uh, first of all, our best guess about how often comets encounter large impacts does not seem to correlate with the number of pits that we see. And then second, when we try to create physical models of what would happen when a comet suffered a high-speed impact, these models just don't create pits like the ones we actually observe. So what's making the pits? Uh, some researchers have hypothesized that the pits are a result of internal explosions of some kind, but in the words of the authors, quote, the driving process remains unknown. Uh, so do we have any better guesses? Well, according to this study, yes, we do. So, Rob, I want you to look at this next picture, uh, picture I've got for you here. This is a picture of Comet 67P shared by the ESA, 
And if you look at this comet from a close orbit under the right conditions, you can see what look kind of like shafts of light, almost like those Spielberg lights, you know, from Steven Spielberg movies. He loves these God lights, the shafts of light mm -hmm. uh, piercing through a, a dusty patch of air or, you know, cutting through different uh, obstacles in the foreground. You see these shafts of light blasting out of the surface of the comet. Like uh, it makes me think of Indiana Jones saying, you know, lightning, fire, power of God or something. Yeah, yeah, it does bring to mind the you know, the, the fires of the Ark or or the the, the lights of um, you know the UFOs, uh, the various spaceships that are that are, that are encountered in Spielberg films. Hundred uh, percent. So I, I was reading an article about this study by Phil Plate, the the bad astronomer, at his blog on Sci-Fi, mm -hmm. and he highlighted this image in particular, the one you're looking at now, Rob, uh, in connection with the subject matter, the study. This photo is taken from a distance of about 177 kilometers, and the point of it is that what's being shown in these shafts of light in the image is not actually lightning or fire or power of God. They're not actually shafts of light. It is actually jets of water vapor that are gassing out from the surface of the comet and being illuminated by the sunlight. Mm. And I've got another photo for you to look at that's up close of these jets. It truly does look amazing. Yeah, it, it it creates this feeling that it is you know, glowing or emitting energy, um, uh, which in a sense it is uh, emitting energy here. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, it creates these are very these are beautiful images. Like I, these would not look out of place, like framed uh, on the wall of some sort of uh, you know a trendy uh, uh, you know New York eatery or something. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, they have an almost artistic quality, but they're they're real photos. Uh, so scientists believe these jets are caused in the following way. A large part of the nucleus of a comet is made of water ice. As a comet with an irregular orbit gets to that part of its orbit closest to the sun, of course, the ice in its crust heats up and it melts or it sublimates. It vaporizes, turns into a gas. And these jets we see in the photos, this is the water vapor that is being exhaled into space by the crusty lobes. But here's where all of the different subjects we've been talking about come together. What we have recently observed in these images is that many of these jets seem to be shooting directly from the mysterious pits in the surface of the comet. Mm. Now, what does that mean? Well, the authors of this study in Nature conclude that the pits are probably sinkholes, sinkholes in space. Well, that makes sense, given what we've just uh, discussed about the uh, the water vapor uh, jetting out of them, right? It is leaving a hollow, and uh, and that's the the very kind of situation that uh, on on Earth can lead to a sinkhole. Exactly right. Now, these wouldn't be caused by the exact same process as natural sinkholes mm -hmm. on Earth, just because it wouldn't involve things like rain drainage and such. But it's pretty close. It's right. it's almost exactly the same thing. And what you're what you're saying, Rob, is exactly correct. So the hypothesized mechanism works like this. The comet travels into the inner parts of its orbit, so it gets close to the sun. Heat from the sun warms the comet, turning the ice into water vapor. And apparently sometimes this heat penetrates the surface, sublimating large pockets of ice underneath the, the top layer of the, the comet. And then the water vapor gets blasted off into space, leaving these voids or caves underneath the surface where the ice used to be. Eventually, the overburden lying above these evaporated comet caves can't support itself, and it collapses, leaving a pit. 
And this can create an interesting feedback cycle because now that there's a pit, radiation from the sun can penetrate deeper into the surface of the comet, warming even more ice below, which is why we see jets of water vapor shooting out of the pits themselves. These are sort of hot spots where the solar radiation can access pockets of ancient ice and heat them up very fast. The authors write, quote, here we report that pits on comet 67P uh, Churyumov-Gerasimenko are active and probably created by a sinkhole process, possibly accompanied by outbursts. We argue that after formation, pits expand slowly in diameter, owing to sublimation-driven retreat of the walls. Therefore, Pits characterize how eroded the surface is. A fresh cometary surface will have a ragged structure with many pits, while an evolved surface will look smoother. The size and spatial distribution of pits imply that large heterogeneities exist in the physical, structural, and compositional properties of the first few hundred meters below the current nucleus surface. So what they're saying there is that there's also probably a way to tell how old the pits are and how old the surface of the comet is by looking at these pits. Uh, over time, the vaporization of ice erodes and smooths over the walls of the pit. So if you're looking at a comet, uh, the older a comet sinkhole is, the smoother its walls and the shallower its pits become. And very new pits in, in less evolved comets are the ones with very steep, straight walls. It's kind of the exact opposite of uh, like hu how human faces age, right? So <laughs> a, a very old piece of comet terrain that's been exposed to the sun many times, I guess, would probably have a smoother surface with shallower pits. And one where the pits are fresh, it's, it's going to be craggier. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, but, but, but like you say, this is essentially a, a sinkhole in space. And, and not even in the, the most likely place you might think to find it, uh, not on a, a planet, but on the, the surface of a comet. Now, the one reason I said maybe actually it wouldn't be quite as bad to fall into a sinkhole in space, at least in this example, is that the gravity of the comet is so low that when you fell into the sinkhole, you wouldn't fall very fast. So you'd probably be fine when you hit the bottom. Yeah. Or maybe you can catch an upward uh, boost on one of those uh, jets, right? Right. It sounds like a great place for an action scene to take place Ooh, in space. Yeah. Ice Pirates 2, Sinkhole City. <laughs> Sinkhole City sounds great. That sounds like exactly like the the kind of place you'd want to wind up in in a like a space noir kind of a, a, a you know, fiction. Uh, yeah, Sinkhole City. I like it. Well, we've uh, I feel like we've really expanded even more on the idea of the sinkhole and hopefully worked a little more to to rescue the sinkhole from the what do you call it the the the, um, uh, the 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 section at the bottom of blogs that the chum has box all, the chum that, box that's not a word of my coinage that's like a, okay. a well known term I think it was a term innovated by somebody who wrote like a I don't know like a Gawker article or something about them a okay. long time ago about like how they're put together and what's in them uh, but yeah that 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 is not a term original to me but I think it is a very good term it's an apt description. Yeah, return. I guess it's referring to uh, the the kind of like uh, slurry of meat that you throw out of a boat to attract sharks. Yes, exactly. That, yeah. that is exactly what those boxes are. They're just like yeah. kind of throwing rotten garbage out there to see what comes up. Yeah, and the the sinkhole deserves better. Uh, the sinkhole yes. is far more interesting. It you know certainly they do. Uh, 
they do have this this visceral impact on us. Just this again, this idea of the earth opening up, opening up and swallowing us whole, or exposing dark realms beneath the earth. But but there's much more beyond that. Much more than just sheer terror or titillation. So uh, hopefully we've we've uh, you know urged everyone out there to to uh, you know respect the sinkhole a little bit more. And obviously, yeah, we'd love to hear from anybody out there. Who, you know, if you've traveled to any of these sinkholes we've mentioned, if you've been to impressive sinkholes that we didn't get into in these episodes, uh, or you just have general thoughts uh, about them, uh, we would love to hear from you. In the meantime, if you would like to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, And wherever that happens to be, we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe if the platform allows you to do so. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 